Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for joining us. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with our Director of European Union Affairs. But while you're settling in, be sure to visit our website, b'nai like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play on your smartphone. Well, joining me today from Brussels, Belgium, is my colleague, Benjamin Nagela. What we want to do today is to discuss what Benebrith has been up to at the EU, and we've got a number of things to update you on. So, Ben, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be back. Thanks a lot. Now, the uh, European Parliament uh, just days ago adopted a resolution on anti-Semitism, which adopted a, an existing definition of anti-Semitism uh, by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And we know that you worked uh, very hard on achieving uh, this um, passage of this resolution. What can you tell us about it? Well, I would consider this within the framework of the EU institutions uh, a milestone in combating anti-Semitism. Uh, I and together with other Jewish organizations and also part of the advisory board to the official working group that is existing in the European Parliament on anti-Semitism have been working uh, very strongly behind the scenes uh, to make this resolution happen, and specifically including the IRA working definition, which we believe is crucial for combating the issue in itself, actually both in assessing and addressing it, but also in terms of collecting data and then following up with the proper steps to tackle them. Now, the definition adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which we will call uh, from this point on by its acronym IRA, uh, yep. in, in May of 2016 reads, and I'm going to read this, um, Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Now, uh, what's, what's not in here, and I think it's uh, really important to get your comment on it, when we go back to the Berlin Conference of the OSCE, I think in 2004, it was uh, then-Secretary of State Colin Powell who discussed the, the dimension of Israel as a part of anti-Semitism um, in terms of going uh, way beyond what some people consider to be criticism of Israel to really anti-Semitic statements, rhetoric, references, canards, and, and so forth. And it was an important moment when Powell said that. This resolution doesn't seem to cover that. Why, why is that the case? Well, actually, it's thus, because what happens with the IRA definition, it goes beyond the, the short summary or the, like, the short definition that you have just read out. It, in addition, also adds and uh, exemplifies specific examples where anti-Semitism occurs and how it occurs, and it actually includes a few examples which cover the anti-Zionism or anti-Semitic uh, remarks within the context of criticizing Israel, meaning, for example, holding Jews collectively responsible for actions of the state of Israel or drawing comparisons of contemporary Israel policy to the ones of the Nazis. So we actually have that in there, which was also the biggest opposition within the European Parliament uh, when it came to the resolution, because everyone 
even the furthest left politician or the furthest right-wing politician was agreeing that there is a need for tackling anti-Semitism. But where we had opposition and a lot of fight going on behind the scenes was actually that people claimed that this definition, including the examples of uh, when Israel criticism becomes anti-Semitic, might or apparently is limiting the freedom of speech or would all, uh, all of a sudden prohibit uh, politicians, but also people in general in the public and the media from, for example, criticizing the occupation, which is absolutely not the case. Yeah, but this is what uh, the problem is uh, at its core, which is that uh, BDS uh, campaign types and uh, others kind of hide behind this issue of, well, it's legitimate criticism, so what's wrong, wrong with legitimate criticism, when in fact uh, they're engaging in anti-Semitism. It's a 21st century version of, um, of classic uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, so the, the issue of, uh, of, of opposition to this because it inhibits free speech, frankly, uh, is a way of not really addressing the current problems that we have, would you say? I completely agree with that. And I think at the end of the day, the Jewish communities around Europe have been paying the price. We had a recent article on the Wuppertal court ruling, for example, uh, it, which was a, it's a, a town in Germany where uh, in the summer of 2014, during the heights of the, of the second Gaza war, a Jewish synagogue was attacked by three Palestinians with uh, uh, firebombs. And the only thing they wanted to do was criticize Israel for their occupation policy, their so-called. And uh, the judge ruled, unfortunately, that it wasn't an anti-Semitic incident. He said it was criticism of Israel. But there we have a proper example where Israel criticism becomes anti-Semitic because it wasn't an Israeli embassy being attacked for what was happening in Israel. It was a Jewish community that had nothing to do with the Israeli government or the war that was going on in the region actually being attacked and had to pay the price for uh, someone that wants to criticize Israel in the wrong way. So I think there, again, we have the example why a definition that includes the examples of anti-Semitic Israel criticism is so crucial. Because even the judicial system in the member states in the European Union is not able and is not educated and sensitized to the issue in order to make the right rulings. And we don't, if you don't have the rulings, we don't have the numbers and therefore cannot tackle the issue. And uh, Jewish communities around Europe are left alone with their issues and being attacked. Yeah, well, it becomes anti-Semitism as it relates to Israel. Uh, when yeah. uh, you treat Israel to a double standard, when you separate Israel out from everybody else. And that's what the BDS crowd does. And that's what uh, those, I, I suppose, who uh, were at the forefront of opposing uh, this uh, resolution uh, were, were thinking uh, as well. Uh, ben, uh, which countries have already adopted this? Now, this is a non-binding resolution. Um, but, but what countries uh, in the European Union have already uh, taken on this definition uh, and kind of incorporated it into their own uh, human rights uh, policies? Yeah. Well, I think it's also important to say that the definition itself is legal and non-binding, meaning it's also written in a non-legal wording. And that's also, to most of the uh, critics in the opposition when it comes to that, they're claiming that it prohibits... Uh, the criticism, it might even uh, make you end up in jail. I always try to respond that it's a legally non-binding definition, meaning no, no legal action is going to be taken. Well, what has happened, and luckily we have seen some momentum when it comes to member states adopting it. We had the UK in December 2016 adopting it already. And we had in the last month Austria adopting it as well. In addition, you have several countries where NGOs, for example, like in the Netherlands, are using 
the definition as well in order to tackle com and combat anti-Semitism and collect data. So we have on both levels something going on, and I very much hope that the resolution that has been adopted now in the European Parliament sends a strong message to member states to, uh, that have not been adopting it up until now uh, to actually follow up the good examples of the UK and Austria. Because IRA has uh, what more than, than 20 members, 20, 20 European states, I, I think. Yeah, uh, so there's 31 are... members total in IRA, and 24 of them are EU member states. That's something I was referring to every single time I was talking to MEPs. In addition, you have a second inst instance where actually all EU member states have voted for the very same definition, which was in December of last year during the annual OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe conference in Hamburg under the chairmanship of the Germans, who are, were trying to push as well for the adoption of the very same definition. And there, out of the 57 member states, which 28 of them are the EU member states, and all of them unanimously voted for it, except Russia, unfortunately. And because it's a unanimous decision process within the OC, the definition has not been adopted. But nevertheless, we have another incident there last December alone, the second one after the IRA adoption, where all EU member states actually voted for the very same definition. So they, they voted for it while they're IRA yeah. members, but <clears throat> they haven't really adopted it. So the challenge uh, before all of us now is to follow up um, with each of the uh, member states uh, to see to it that they do adopt it. What, what kind of program is there uh, envisioned to do that? Well, one of the other key elements of the resolution, I think that basically brings us to what has to be done in terms of pushing the uh, combating anti-Semitism topic a bit further is also calling for special envoys within the member states and all parliamentary groups on fighting anti-Semitism that would then be in charge of actually implementing this resolution in the member states themselves. And, I think and it's to up date, to, and also I think Britt can play a great role with this, with having so many lodges in all the member states actually contacting the governments, talking to the representatives, and especially in the foreign ministry, which where most of the... Uh, issues and comes to anti-Semitism are being combated, requesting and pushing for the legislation and actually adopting it. To date, of all the EU states, how many actually have special envoys, those who are specifically designated to deal with anti-Semitic issues? If I recall correctly, it should be a number around nine or ten. The issue with that is as well that most of those special envoys are not actually specific specifically focused on anti-Semitism only. You would have, for example, uh, one in Germany, Felix Klein. He is a special ambassador within the foreign ministry, which I think is already an issue in itself that the foreign ministry is actually taking the issue because I think we should, for the most part, actually separate the issue of Middle East and Israel and anti-Semitism in Europe. But on the other hand, he's not only tackling anti-Semitism, he's also responsible for Holocaust restitution issues and everything related to Jewish communities in Europe. So one of the requests that also we have been cooperating strongly with the European Commission and the coordinator on combating anti-Semitism in the European Commission, Katharina von Schnurbein, is actually first taking the position of those special envoys out of the foreign ministries, making it an individual position within the interior ministry or the government and letting them only focus on the issue of anti-Semitism itself. Simply because the matter of it is so important that it cannot be tackled with and actually being engaged with, with so many different other issues. It sounds like we've made some progress, but we still have a lot more uh, work to do. And uh, Ben, we look forward to working with you as you work with your colleagues in Europe in uh, making sure that um, the, the positive news which came out of this vote now extends into the countries themselves to adopt this and uh, to appoint these special envoys 
um, to uh, fight uh, anti-Semitism in Europe, which uh, is one of the, the main um, areas of, of, of concern that we have uh, today as, as Jews. I'd like to move to another issue, um, if possible. Uh, we passed a little while ago the one-year anniversary of the terrorist bombings at the Brussels airport uh, and at the metro station in, in Brussels. And you're living there. Uh, we'd like to talk about what it was like that day. Tell us a little about that. And uh, with all of the, the terrorist incidents that uh, have occurred and are occurring in Europe every day, uh, it seems that uh, every morning when we turn on the news here, uh, we've heard of something happening uh, in Europe, the UK, uh, the most recent in Paris and, and others. Um, tell us a little about what it was like that day in Brussels and um, what is the sense in the EU, or in the European Parliament, we'll focus there, on how to, to confront and defeat uh, this uh, uh, terrible scourge of terrorism? Absolutely. Yeah, I remember quite uh, uh, quite vividly uh, the day we actually we we I got one of one of the messages, the first messages I got first from you as well, whether it was okay. I was walking to the European Parliament. There was a foreign affairs committee meeting, and uh, upon walking to the entrance where you were getting your accreditation, I already saw the Molenbeek subway station, which is basically 500 meters away, and you can uh, you can see it from the European Parliament entrance. And I saw a lot of. Uh, emergency cars and I realized something was wrong up until later I was entering the parliament and then I realized and the, the news spread that uh, an attack had been happening already an hour before at the at, uh, airport and it's half an hour or almost an hour later at the subway station. The situation in Brussels to be quite frank has been basically a state of emergency since I've moved to Brussels almost four years ago. I came to Brussels and I started as a actually working for Bnev International as a, as a trainee. And a few months after I started, we had the attacks of the Jewish Museum. And very, since this very day, basically, Brussels has been standing still. It's still in state of emergency. If I, it's still the second highest uh, terror threat alarm level in the city for almost two years now. And uh, which means you have military everywhere which means the security in all the international institutions has been raised dramatically. You have basically airport security systems everywhere you go, which makes moving around, traveling around, I'm traveling a lot uh, for work, attending conferences, makes it much more difficult. Because they're also they're struggling with the, the airport security, they're struggling with the security within the, in the city itself. Now, I have personally have the feeling that the EU, but also the member states where, which have been struggling the most with the terror attacks, which has been recently in London, but also Paris, which is close by and have been a few times, they have been able to address or actually decide on how to tackle the issue properly. On the one hand, you have the perception and the fear of the population that their freedom of movement, but also their freedom of privacy and privacy protection has been is going to be limited while the security is going to be raised at the same time. And then you also have uh, populist parties uh, from, from, from the right actually trying to take momentum of the situation and the fear of the people and trying to push their own agenda. So it's been, I think it's just been a state of uncertainty within the population, but also within uh, the, the, the policy sector and uh, the European Parliament. And they're uh, trying to find ways. And I think up until now, I don't really see like a red line and where the direction is going to be going. 
And I think that's also one of the aspects where I've been trying to focus is that Israel is a country that has been dealing with the same kind of terror that now arrived in Europe for decades. And there you see a much better perception, but also a much better way of dealing with it while at the same time uh, moving on with day-to-day life and business. Is it your impression when you talk to members of the European Parliament, I mean, where on their um, agenda uh, or agendas uh, is, is the terrorism issue? They're all affected by it in one way or another, not only because they, they, they live and work in, in Brussels, uh, but as, as Europeans, they, they go back to their own countries. Uh, where do you think it is? Are they, or are they more interested still in, in economic issues, in uh, the, the question of the Euro or, the, or Brexit? I mean, where do you find uh, terrorism on that, on that priority list? I would definitely see very high up there. I think the biggest issue with European politicians, but also the European Commission, is that the whole EU has been in a state of emergency, not, not only since the terror attacks, but since the economic crisis, then it's been followed up by the, uh, the, the Greek crisis, you have the migrant crisis on top of that, and then you have the terror attacks. So I think that basically the EU, including the Brexit that has been shaking up the whole system on top of that, is in a state of emergency in trying to redefine themselves trying to recover from all those crises that I've just mentioned that are still not passed and are still not solved while tackling the biggest issue of them all, which is, in my opinion, is a terror threat. So all the, all the institutions are trying desperately to keep the European idea of having open borders, having the freedom of movement, while at the same time raising security and at the same time not falling into the trap of the populist parties that are trying to keep, uh, take momentum both in the national elections, and we have, tried, have seen that, for example, Four National has been just closely defeated. In the Netherlands, we had a similar issue. We're going to see in September now in Germany also how all, all the attacks, also the Christmas market in December in Berlin, are going to affect the national uh, elections. So it's both on the national and the European level, we have a big challenge in front of us, and I think we all are trying uh, to, to find solutions to the problems that are rather new to the EU. Well, we'll surely be watching this uh, issue very closely. We, we have no choice but to do so. Uh, it affects us as well. And, uh, Ben, we appreciate, of course, as always, uh, the attention that uh, you give to these important issues which affect us as Jews, as supporters of Israel, and as those who live in uh, the democratic world. So uh, thank you for, for all you do. Uh, that's about all the time we have for today. Uh, Ben, you'll be back. Uh, You're always welcome. Um, Thanks again for joining us for the B'nai International podcast today. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you haven't already, might I suggest listening to Ben's previous appearance on the podcast from May, where he lays out how B'nai is involved in the European body over uh, B'nai Don't forget to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my colleague, Benjamin Nagla, I'm Dan Mariashin. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.